Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a founder that is really doing great stuff in Singapore. You know, and I think that we're really going to understand the market. We're going to understand as well the fundraising environment and ways to think about it. The opportunities that are opening up with COVID, uh, especially for companies operating in, in the logistical space. Uh, but I think that without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Chang Wen Lai. Welcome to the show. Hello, hi. Thanks for having me online. So, originally born in Singapore, Changwen. So, how was life growing up there? Well, to be honest, Singapore is a pretty easy place to grow up in. You have fantastic infrastructure, GDP per capita is high, everyone's quite comfortable, quite well educated. And when I applied to some British universities and for, uh, for my college, they asked for an English proficiency test, and I was like, English is our first language. We may have a different accent, but I can guarantee you I understand English better than most. <laughs> Very cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and, and I guess the entrepreneurial mindset and, and, and this drive for, for, you know, perhaps like seeking possibilities where others see problems. Uh, how, how, how do you come across this? I mean, anyone in your family was an entrepreneur? Well, my, my dad was an entrepreneur as well, but... I'm not sure entrepreneurship necessarily comes from the family. I think it's, to be honest, I, I don't think anyone has the answer, right? What drives entrepreneurship? Governments have been trying to figure out how to make their population more entrepreneurial. I don't think anyone has found a great answer to that, but I guess it always helps to say that my dad, at some point in his life, was an entrepreneur as well. Very cool. Very cool. And obviously, you went at it, you know, you studied business and finance, so, I mean, any anything interesting there? I mean, why, why, why did you go for that? I mean, what, were you, like, attracted into business, you know, growing up? I mean, did you have, like, your lemonade stand, or or how did that happen? Well, I, I, I don't think I'll lie about this, but I don't think I've ever had much of an artistic or musical talent. I've had friends, in while singing karaoke, they would tell me to please stop and hand over the mic because their ears cannot take it anymore. <laughs> So, so I think that, that path was definitely closed off to me. When I draw a dog, people ask me if that's a fish. So again, I think that's not valid again. Uh, in the humanities side, although, I, well, my literature was always okay and never had that much interest in it. 
I think numbers always appealed to me more, numbers and science, right? So I think when I was younger, I was thinking about being a rocket scientist. I was quite into physics, read a lot about relativity, super string theory, that whole bunch when I was before college. I think when it came down to choosing which path I would take, I know I, regretfully I must say that what shaped my decision was the fact that a certain career pays more. And I think if you, and that's probably general knowledge, which is finance pays more. So if I'm good at math and finance pays the best, then why not take a finance path? Yeah. And obviously you did a, an exchange program too in the US. I mean, you came here to Wharton, so I guess that gave you the, the possibility to take a look at, uh, you know, and, and compare you know, what's happening here versus what, what was happening in, in Singapore. So so how was that for you? Was it like a big culture shock or not? No, no, to be honest, I think the culture in Singapore is not too different from the culture in the US or even the UK. I mean, I'm sure there are small nuances, but it's not altogether that different. To be honest, there, there was not much of a culture shock. I think when I was in the US in 2010, there about the, the biggest shock I had was the fact that you could buy anything on Amazon and it became so quickly or so convenient that it I guess the, the the only real difference was the fact that I could buy things online and it came easily. And truth be told, even the US, if you just rewind back 15 years, I, I don't think people would have taken e-commerce the same way they expect it now. Today. Got it. Got it. And and you then, you know, did a little bit of investment banking, were a trader as well in derivatives. So I think that that perhaps gave you access to um, to companies too, especially on the investment banking side, and see you know what were some of the trades of of the companies that that ended up doing something meaningful. So I mean, were there like any specific insights that you got into into what makes you know companies great during those years? Well, I think that's interesting. Right? If you look at investment banking, you you realize that you you go where the money is, not necessarily what the media likes to hear or what is very interesting. And you realize that the bulk of investment banking deals were in very traditional businesses, in, in very unsexy businesses. But well-run businesses, businesses with focus, businesses which executed well. And those are the ones which actually did quite well post-IPO as well. And I think that was quite illuminating to me that it isn't always the sexiest company in the, in the media headlines which necessarily did the best financially but companies which really stayed their course, focused, and did what they were doing well. And there were very few magic bullets. I mean, when we were running the pitch decks and so on, as bankers then, we always ask, so what's that magic bullet? What's the magic bullet? Right? You just want to find a great marketing story. But the reality is, in most of the best companies, there's, there's no magic bullet. It's just a combination of many good things done well, neither of which could stand alone prop a company up, but together, they really created great companies which IPO'd well, held the share price up well. Got it. And here, I mean, after Barclays, you spent a couple of years uh, doing the, you know, the e-commerce route as an entrepreneur before you actually, you know, found the segue into Ninja Van, which is, you know, what you're doing now. And we're going to talk in, we're going to talk about it just a little bit. But I want to understand, you know, like. At what point do you decide, you know, like to really give your notice at Barclays and say, hey, it's my time to go at it and take the, the leap of faith as an, as an entrepreneur? <laughs> you wouldn't believe it, but I think that point came when 
you know, as a student, when you're younger, you're always a bit frugal. Buying a MacBook Air is like quite a big event. You save up for it and so on. Came a certain point when I was in Barclays where, you know, I was looking at a new laptop and I was like, yeah, sure, why not just buy it? Who cares? And and that made me realize that I was completely losing track of the value of money at that point in time. Like, you know, almost anything is, it's it's just a by-the-way thing, you know, something which used to cost thousands of dollars, which you would save up for, now it's, you kind of lose track on the value of that. And it made me think a bit deeper as to why am I really working and, you know, what do I really want in life? And the lesson I learned you know, during that moment of realization was that banking is comfortable. Finance is very comfortable. That I could get so used to this life that I might actually lose track of what was really important to me. And what was important to me was... I kind of wanted to leave a legacy of sorts, to do something, to build something, to be a bit different. And I realized that if I stayed longer in finance, I might get so comfortable that I will never dare to venture out and do something like that ever again. And maybe one day when I'm 50 years old and I look back at my life, yes, I might be comfortable and so on, but I realized then that I, I never took the took the risk to try something different, to build something, to push myself in a very different way. I think that, that was the breaking point or rather the, the point when I realized that maybe I shouldn't be staying in finance at this point in time. Maybe one day I'll come back, but well. So then, so then what was, obviously here you are uh, questioning yourself and questioning, you know, like what, what you want to do in your life and in the future, but but I guess like there was like one event that, that really pushed you over the edge to say, I'm, I'm going to go at it. What was that? The fact that I bought a MacBook Air without thinking twice. <laughs> okay. So then what happened next? What happened next? I asked myself, what do I really want in life? I used to think that maybe I wanted money, I wanted to earn good money. Once I realized that what I wanted was a fulfilling life in which money was, it's not unimportant, but it's not the most important driving factor. I, I wanted to do something which I would remember, live certain life experiences which exposed me to more of the world. So on the back of those thoughts, I decided maybe I should just tender. I had a small e-commerce company running then, and I said, you know, why don't I go and try it? You never try, never know, right? And if it fails, I can always go back to finance. Yeah, and this, this e-commerce company was a like a side project that you had there going on that you did with with someone else? Or, or how did you have that e-commerce on the side? Yeah, it was a, kind of a company on the side. We were doing men's fashion. So uh, it was quite interesting. And what happened there? Because, I mean, obviously uh, you realized that, you know, you didn't want to be another e-commerce company. You actually wanted to serve e-commerce companies. So... So walk us through what was the experience with this business and at what point you realized that maybe you need to shift a little bit the way that, that you're looking at things. Well, I think e-commerce was interesting in itself. We learned a lot about the various nuances in e-commerce. And I think it was more coincidental that we started a logistics company as well to service our own e-commerce company. And it was a realization that as e-commerce, unless you are an Amazon or you're a huge platform, you always have a certain niche, which in itself it is profitable. It could be a very decent business. 
But if we were betting on a inflection point between online and offline retail, wouldn't it be better to bet on providing shovels to the gold rush instead of being a miner in the gold rush? I think that that, that realization made us change our tactics and you know it kind of made us realize that perhaps we could go into a more unsexy part of the business of the value chain and e-commerce but possibly be a lot more important in that part of the value chain got it so then what was that process of uh, of bringing that part of the value chain to life well, i think the first was understanding the various parts of the value chain in e-commerce I think very obviously one part is the e-commerce website, which is selling the goods to consumers. The other part would be the logistics in actually physically moving those goods. Okay. So, so I mean, this was the segue into Ninja Van. And obviously Ninja Van, you know, is your, your biggest success uh, when it comes to, to, to building and scaling companies so far. So, so in terms of Ninja Van, you know, especially like putting together, I mean, once you really understand, you know, the part of the value chain that you really want to tackle uh, and servicing all these e-commerce uh, companies, then how did you go about like, let's say, you know, like building the team around you? Well, I think that building the team, many phases, right? The first phase when you build a company, I think what you do is you, you go towards familiarity and trust and you work with a higher people whom you have whom you have known for the past one two decades and so the initial people who joined were people which whom i knew people whom i trusted people whom i respected so i think that's the first phase in hiring up for a company the second phase which came a bit later was more on the professionals who still have the right heart so they, they were experienced, they, they knew the industry, they knew the sector, or they knew how to run a much bigger team. But at the same time, I, I, feel, I felt that they, they were also really able to empathize and they had the right heart for the business at that point in time. So I think it's a certain phasing in of a business, but something which never went away was the requirement that people had the right attitude, had the right characteristics. Got it. And there is one point there that I would love for you to expand, having the right heart. Can you expand on that? Well, there are many people, and maybe not many people, right? let me correct myself. There are people out there who are very career-driven, very CV-driven. It's always about building up your CV. It's always about doing the right thing, which gives you a higher salary for your next job. Essentially, these are people who constantly pad their CVs find the best job which gives them the best CV, CV, which allows them to get the best and most high-paying job thereafter. Okay. I think such and people may not be a good fit with a growing company, with a company which is a startup, which may have problems meeting payroll at times, may need you to work seven days a week because the reality is Nothing is worth it. I mean, it's never going to be worth it in your CV. We'll never pay enough. On a risk-adjusted basis, you probably may never earn more than your previous job in a comfortable, big corporate. But you, you join it because you want 
to work with like-minded people who are working hard for a vision, who you know, and and at the top of the priority list is doing the right thing for the company and making sure that everything they do is to grow the company. I know it sounds like it should always be the case, but in, in many professionals out there, that's not the case if they are not if their intention is not to grow themselves and have a great experience, if it's about building up their CV and getting the next paycheck, the next higher paycheck, I think it's a very different mentality altogether. And I'm not saying that either is wrong. It's just very different mentality. Yeah, absolutely. I hear you. I hear you. And and for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of Ninja Van? Well, I think in a nutshell, very simply... Ninja Van is essentially the FedEx and UPS for Southeast Asia. We're not the sexiest business out there. I wish I could tell you that we Uberized everything and extremely asset light and parcels magically move from one place to the other without anyone lifting a finger. <laughs> but the reality is we are UPS or FedEx. We think we may be a bit more tech forward in terms of how we look at technology, but I think it's more a function of the fact that we started in this era rather than in 50 years ago, for example. So obviously we're more tech forward, but it doesn't mean that it makes a huge difference necessarily. The reality is that as much as we would like to make the business sound extremely sexy, it is a lot of work on the ground, a lot. And it's extremely laborious, very operational, very physical. Technology definitely helps. Technology is very important to us, but people management, operational management is equally important. And how many people do you have now? Right now, we have more than 30,000 employees, full-time employees. Wow. So how do you go about managing so many people? I mean, what? how do you think that you've, you've grown yourself as a, as a leader too and, and kept at the same pace of growth with the company? Wow, that's not an easy question, right? I think that the first is the realization that technology is not the be-all and end-all. Truth be told, when I first started Ninja, we thought technology was everything that technology solves all problems. But the reality is technology helps, but it's not a single solution. So the realization that people management, that organizational structure, that community, it's all very important in building a very cohesive, efficient workforce, which is aligned and, you know, you get shit done well. I think that that was that increasingly that realization started coming to me more and more that wow. the magic bullet in your business is your people. And I know this sounds like a broken record. Most people say that. But I actually do quite believe in that. That's amazing. And and in terms of fundraising, how much capital? I mean, obviously, you know, all these uh, operations, all the people, I mean, it sounds like capital intensive. How much capital have you guys raised today? Well, we have raised about 400 million US. Got it. And And what have you learned about fundraising because i'm sure that during all these different you know stages you know obviously i'm sure that there's been different expectations i mean you've done from seed all the way to series d so i guess how would you say that those expectations have been you know uh, changing you know from financing cycle to financing cycle what have you learned i have learned that dilution is not necessarily a bad thing <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's interesting that you say this because 
you know, most of the founders that I speak with, they're like, oh, my God, eh, I don't want to give, you know, equity away in my business. And how much should I give away? So so tell us, expand a little bit on this, if, if, if you can, on on why, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's important, you know, the dilution and, and really thinking about it from the lens that you're thinking about. It. So, so let's go back to first principles, right? Why did I do this business? Did I do this business to have the biggest financial reward? Or did I do it because I genuinely believed in a vision which I wanted to learn along the way? I wanted to grow with my colleagues and my team and just have a great life experience without, while letting down as few people as possible. I, I might... The reason why I started this business was the latter, not the former. I, the, the point in doing this was not to earn the most amount of money I could have earned. And truth be told, if you are thinking of earning the most amount of money in your life and you are in finance, there's a very good chance that you stay in finance because risk adjusted, you probably earn more in finance. So the reality is, if I started the business because I wanted to do something to, to build memories, to build a legacy of sorts, should I be? over-optimizing on my cap table. Over-optimizing on the cap table leads to a few outcomes, in my opinion. One, you get richer than you could have been, which is, I guess, a good outcome. But the downside to that is you raise money from investors who may not be the best partners in the long run. You raise money at an evaluation which may not be sustainable in the long run. And when you eventually lead to down rounds, the hurt is real and it could lead to a real vicious cycle in the company. And the reality is if you keep fundraising and you fundraise every six months and you take a smaller check so that you get less diluted, you pump the valuation again, you go for a small check again, are you really running a company or are you just running an investment banking process where you are constantly having roadshows? Yeah. And obviously it's a massive uh, distraction as well. So, um, Totally get that. And obviously now, you know, like there is the, the topic that everyone is talking about is coronavirus. And, uh, you know, I guess that for, for logistical companies, you know, it presents a different set of challenges that they've never seen, that their parents have never seen, and even their grandparents have never seen. So, so can you tell us about the opportunities ahead with COVID for you guys? Well, can we speak from my point of view? I think there are so many things which obviously I'm not seeing. I think the biggest opportunity and something which we are seeing in our business, the first is a very strong conviction to move from offline to online. I think the conviction has never been stronger. We have seen people explore moving offline to online. And every time we push them and say, why don't you do more? Why don't you be more innovative? The answer always is that online is 5% of my business. I will put some effort in, but it's not that important. So it really takes a unprecedented event like COVID to change people's mindset that you're screwed if you only have retail. You do need to think of something else and you need to meld the two experiences together well. So that's the first thing we've been seeing. The second is quite interesting, which is we are seeing an increase in SME sellers trying to sell online. So maybe one could argue that it is less job opportunities out there, that people are more afraid of their jobs. 
that they are willing to take a small risk can be a small medium enterprise. They try to hawk their wares online instead of having a day job. So we, we are seeing kind of a twofold change in the e-commerce landscape. The first is the big retailers are pay, paying a lot more attention to the online channels. The second is that we're seeing a growth in the number of people trying to sell online. Very interesting. I mean, obviously, there's a big shift in happening. And, you know, one thing as well that happens is that perhaps, you know, like big companies may do better in the short run, but perhaps not so well in the long run, you know, as compared to other companies that may be, you know, up and coming and, and really, you know, like uh, embracing innovation. So can you expand a little bit on that? So let me, let me try to venture something quite brave here, but I think there are three main drivers in the equalization or the democratization of retail. It has always been, retail has always been in the space of large retailers. Large retailers always do better than small retailers, generally, right? And that's because they have economies of scale on supply chain, economies of scale in retail space, economies of scale in marketing. Arguably, that's, that's why a big retailer does better than a small one-shop retailer, right? It's logistics, retail space, and marketing, brand building. But when you see when you see two very strong forces converge, one is social, the prevalence of social and the influence it has on people, and the other is the ease of setting up online shops in connecting to the consumers and giving the consumers an almost equivalent experience with a big retailer online. I think these social and e-commerce forces is driving a very big democratization in a big retailer versus a small retailer kind of paradigm. So what we are seeing is that if you can help equalize the supply chains of retailers, if social is a great an easy way to market where people do not have to spend millions to just build up a brand, but they can build it through in smart, targeted, intelligent, thoughtful, personable social channels. And the fact that you can create an online shop on chat, on social platforms, on Shopify, for example, I think all that is a great leveling in the retail space then you cannot just use size to bulldoze your way through anymore. But you really have to find a way to connect to your consumer's hearts. And whether you are big or small, it all boils down to how you connect your brand to the consumer. You cannot use money to bulldoze your way through on supply chains, on retail space, on marketing anymore. 100%. And I think that that's very, very profound. Changwen, so, so imagine, you know, you go to sleep tonight. And you go to sleep and you wake up five years later. And, I mean, unbelievable snooze, imagine. And you wake up in a world where the vision of Ninja Van is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, that world looks similar to how Shopify is imagining it in America. That world looks like a world where every small seller with a good engagement with his consumers on multiple platforms, his website, his social media platforms, his email CRM systems, 
that seller focuses on his consumer and he leaves the rest to us. We handle his micro supply chains from anywhere in the world to his small warehouse, his home office, his re small retail shop. He gets economies of scale, which is similar to what the big retailers are getting in the entire supply chain process. He gets access to the best distribution network to all consumers at a price point which is not too different from what Amazon gets. And he leverages on the multiple channels available to him, social, Facebook, Instagram, WeChat, LineChat, his own website. And he connects deeply with that consumer and he focuses on that connection while we settle the rest for him. Very, very cool. So <clears throat> I guess one of the questions that I typically ask on, to the guests that come on the show is, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Changwen that, that was coming out of Barclays and, and perhaps thinking about, you know, doing something, you know, and, and, and being an entrepreneur and starting a business, knowing what you know now, if you had the opportunity to go back and give your, yourself one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? You wouldn't believe it, but... I think that advice would be stay in Barclays for a few years more and fund your seed round and Series A yourself. So, you know, which goes contrary, right? So I'm not saying over-optimize your cap table. I'm saying if you have the opportunity to and you believe in yourself enough, save up so you can skip around because that makes a big difference to your ownership. But I didn't work long enough, didn't have big enough in estate that I had to raise external financing. And this amount I raised, which I will not disclose, right, is it's actually not too big. That if I stay in Barclays for a few years, I would have done it myself. And that would have saved at least a 25% dilution on the start. Very cool. And, you know, funny enough, now we're seeing more and more companies that are either doing that or, or even bootstrapping all the way until, you know, like they have a lot of leverage for, for raising money. So, so thank you. Thank you for share, for sharing that, Changwen. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, I, I think you could just share my email or something and, and they can just reach out. I think that works. Wonderful. And do you have like any social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, or anything like that? You know, with any logistics company, even if you perform at 99.9% happy customers, right? You have that 0.1% who are slightly pissed off. So yeah. imagine if you are doing more than a million parcels a day. That's a lot of partially pissed off customers a day. <laughs> That's the reality of it, right? That's the reality of it. So I don't really use social much anymore myself because it's, <laughs> it's just a miserable time. People are just scolding me. Why is my parcel late for an hour? Why? Tell me why. Why can't your driver come on time? I'm sorry. It happens sometimes. And, if, you know, even 0.1% of the time on millions a day, that's, that still adds up. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. Well, Changwen, thank you so, so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me as well. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.